the group, I was in the front of the room. The head of the C community was there and the Dalai Lama was between us. And uh, I'll just tell you a, a cute story about that. The Dalai Lama, I don't think, is used to sitting for three days in behind closed doors uh, with, with the same people. So in the so he's a character, as you're not surprised to hear. So in the middle of the meeting, as we're sitting there having discussions about the other and, and responsibility and justice and all that kind of stuff, in the middle of it, he reaches over and he starts playing with the long white beard of the head of the Sikh community. <laughs> you know, just, just reaches over to his right, right? Welcome to the Innovative Founder, the show where entrepreneurs get real. real. These are the raw, the gut-wrenching, often hilarious, sometimes shocking, and definitely entertaining stories of innovative business founders who are making their beautiful dent in the world. No BS, no posturing, and no narcissists allowed. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the unscripted adventures on today's episode. Now, here's your hairless hosts, Bob Regneris and Brandon Boyd. Welcome, welcome to everybody, the Innovative Founders Show. We have we got know. a good guest today. You know, we just got off the Zoom with this guest, and Brandon and I I'm, just, I'm kind overwhelmed. Of admitted, just kind of admitted to each other, like, yeah, we're a little overwhelmed. Yeah, um, I feel, yeah. Yeah, this guy's I mean, awesome. He's here's doing somebody, some... what, a couple decades older than us, Brandon, who yeah. probably has more energy and more enthusiasm. Yeah. So I'm kind of like, whoo, I got wow. to get like revved up here. I know. Talking about putting a, a dent in the world. This guy has put some serious dents in the world and, and doing some amazing work. Very excited about that. But before, you know, again, I'm still reeling from our interview. Bob, what what's happened this? What's going on this week in your life? Before we get all into the good stuff, I was uh, I, I was thinking this morning. We've been we've wrapped ourselves in a couple shows over the past few years. One of them is Ozark. I don't know if, Ooh, if you've watched that's it. A good one. That's a you know we we got we were a little late watching the last season, but we we finished up Ozark. We're in the final few episodes of Better Call Saul which is an oh, episode yeah. on AMC, uh, a show on AMC, the prequel to Breaking Bad. And we're in str into Stranger Things. And oh, yes. I, I'm I'm just like amazed kind of where we're at in our entertainment uh, evolution of this, the whole idea of this, the, the streaming series, where it's like, you know, typically what we've, what we've been used to is like, okay, September rolls around and then the networks roll out their shows and then, you know, they do shows and then they take the summer off. Well, these, these shows are, are paramount to like a movie release, but they're better than movies because a movie is what, you know, 90 minutes, two hours, maybe three hours if it's a Marvel movie, but these are, these episodes are like 45 minutes to an hour, hour and a half. So it's like we get 10, 13 movies that are like pushed at us. Mm -hmm. And what we were talking about last night, my wife and I was like, how amazing and deep these stories are. Like you, you like none of it is real, but you believe it's real. And I'm just like amazed at the depth of storytelling that like our entertainment industry has gotten to. Like these, these are just powerful stories and they're mm. intense, they're graphic. And it's like, you just get immersed, right? I mean, I just yeah. love being immersed. Like I love the Marvel movies because you just kind of lose yourself. But these yeah. shows that we're watching are just like, you just immerse yourself in these fictional stories. And it's like, oh my goodness, like the character development. I just, I... I just love story, Brandon. And so yeah. being involved in these shows, it's like, it's so epic. Yeah. 
I, I remember that with Breaking Bad, everybody, you know, there's, yeah. when I, I mean, it, it takes a lot for a show to keep me engaged and, 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 but, oh my gosh, from the moment that show began and, and it's like, everyone can kind of relate with this idea that like here, desperation, which would, you know, the primary character, yes. like, he was desperate, you know, and it's, and we, we want to look for ways, well, he's evil and he's bad because he did a thing. No, he was desperate. And when, and, and he really tapped into that human thing is like, what would you do if right. you were desperate to feed your family, to make sure your family is taken care of? And, and they hit it from the very first episode. And that's, uh, you know what, that's really cool because like the shows I just rattled off all are people in desperate situations. Yeah. So maybe I'm, yeah. maybe we're attracted to desperate people. Maybe that's know. what it is. Speaking of desperate, you should have seen me yesterday as I attempted to get on my windsurfing board. As you know, I just took that up as a hobby. I'm yeah. very, very much a beginner. So I went out to the lake where all the windsurfing people are and, you know, and, and proceeded to prance out there with my board and with the friends that, and, you know, encouraged me to, 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 to do it. And, and it was a windy day, but it was a gusty windy day oh. and the wind began to shift. So I'm on this public beach. There's all these people watching everything. I'm trying to just stand on my board. It was a new board. It wasn't the training board, which is kind of like having training wheels. Yeah. Did, you know, in Texas, this was actually a real board. Okay. And, you know, it sank a few inches under my feet, which my training board. So it was, quite entertaining to watch me flop around and, and because the wind shifted i used an excuse to say you know what i'm going to come back a different day and do yeah. this but yeah so, so did you enjoy it i did enjoy it i did i'll enjoy it more where there's not 100 people standing around you know kind of looking at the old guy on a board flop so were they really person. watching you or did you just not at all it was just you. my own self okay insecure. yeah i was just I made it up in my head but it okay. sounds more dramatic for, you know, if I do it that way, but no, no, I had, it was fun. It was good to know. It was good to learn about, you know, shifting winds and gustiness and watch some of these other guys out there doing it and how they navigate, you know, different wind speeds and things like that. So, so you didn't, you, you didn't hurt yourself and you didn't hurt yeah. anybody else. True. I okay, may have hit, fantastic. hit the kid with my sail. I was going by, I might've hit him in the head, but he deserved it. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, today we interviewed a man named Richard Marker, who is a philanthropist. Now I'm not sure I've talked to many philanthropists in my lifetime, Brandon. Have I mean, you? I haven't either. No, I haven't either. I mean, uh -huh. I, I admit I kind of really don't didn't know what a philanthropist was. And I asked Richard what it was. And I think he'd give a pretty simple answer, which uh, you want to look out for. But Richard describes himself as an internationally known elder. And he puts that in quotes. You know, he's he's an older gentleman. But what, what he explained to us off the air, Brandon, was that elder is a is a term of respect, is a term of honor. And he was called an elder and now he's just kind of embracing that because he's he's done so many things but yeah. he's an educator right he's an advisor he's he's lectured in 40 countries taught thousands of other philanthropists and foundation professionals how to be better at what they do i guess at its core this is this is a gentleman who wants to see problems, macro major problems solved in the world. And he's inspiring yes. other people to do that. And I think today, if, if you get anything out of this conversation, listen for that. I think that's what, that's what endeared me to him. Brandon was his, like, he really, he really sees the problems that are systemic in the world. Mm -hmm. And he actually has the desire, passion, and energy to see that they get solved. And for me to know that there's people out there doing that, 
gives me a great sense of comfort. Yes. And Bob, one thing, a theme that really came through with him was inclusion. He is, you know, with mm. all of his background and training and, and he's taught theology, he's, he's trained in many disciplines, is that one thing he would he just did not bend on is he has a firm conviction about inclusion. And, and, and we're going to learn more about that in the interview is, is that's so very important to him. He's not saying that he has, that there is one solution or one theology or ideology that is going to fix systemic oh. problems. He is saying, no, it is going to take a combination and it's going to take inclusion. And I really love that, that he, he wouldn't bend on that. That was a common denominator theme through the whole interview. And I highly respect that. A, a breath of fresh air because yes. there's so many people yes. today that are saying they have the answers. Yes. And unless you follow their ideology, you are never going to get to a solution. Here's somebody who actually knows how the world works and knows that it's going to take people from different backgrounds, different disciplines, different belief systems to solve the systematic and systemic problems in this, in this globe. And like I said, I, I feel better having talked to him knowing that there's somebody like him yes, on, on, the, on the watch and Absolutely. training people to do that. So uh, we really hope you enjoy our conversation with our, our new friend, Richard Marker. All right. Welcome, innovative founders. Welcome, we everyone. Fantastic guest today, Richard Marker. You're, you live out in Bethesda, Maryland we now? Do. Is that where you're we, located? We live in Bethesda. Awesome. So, but you were, yeah, we were in in New York city for about 20 years. And then four and a half years ago, we moved down here for family reasons. Yeah. And so Richard and I have a little bit of a connection. He lived in Chicago for 13 years. So we were looking at some of the markers that we know there. So it's always nice to have some little connection. Bob never came for dinner though. You know, he's a kind of a snob. Well, we didn't know each other. We didn't know each other then. Ah, but I well, can see we're going to get along because the sarcasm is already being laid on pretty thick. Yeah. So I know we're going to be fast friends. Bob would have demanded meat on the table. And that wouldn't, that wouldn't align <laughs> no, with you, Richard. So, you know. so he was just being courteous. Is that yes. the thing? Yeah, yeah I, don't, I didn't want to offend you by having barbecue sauce all, all over my face. So <laughs> a bib. Well, great. It's great to great to meet you today, Richard. I know people are going to be really inspired to hear some of your stories because they're vast and they're and they're interesting. So, welcome to the show. Well, my pleasure. So, Richard, there's there's so many good things here. We're so excited about some of your stories. But t- tell us this: what what is going on right now? What are you working on right now? What projects are you excited about? What's what's going on in your life that you're excited about right now? Okay. Well, there's really two things that uh, that occupy me at, at this stage of my life. You know, I, I've reached a stage where I guess I qualify technically as semi-retired. You know, the pandemic convinced me that that that, that was true. Uh, you know, I'm <laughs> 77 years old, so that, that made it pretty clear. But uh, but the things that but the things that occupy me are the things that really had me excited for the last quarter century. On a professional level, I'm deeply involved in philanthropy. I'm a professor of philanthropy part-time. I, I lecture about philanthropy around the world. I on, on a very specific niche basis, I advise funders and foundations. And so that's what's on the professional side. And I really profoundly believe in that for all sorts of reasons. And on the volunteer side, I, I'm very involved in international interreligious things. As chair of a couple of important boards, I, in fact, I was just in Rome. We were a little bit on vacation, but for five days of meetings at the 
Vatican. A couple of weeks before then, I was in Doha for an interreligious meeting. Last Friday, after I came, came back, I was at a meeting in New York with the number two person in the Greek Orthodox Church. So on a volunteer base, I'm deeply involved in interreligious things on, on that level as well. I've been doing that for a long time. In most cases at this stage, I'm, I'm involved as a past chair of things as opposed to a future chair. But those are the two major involvements that I have that I really care about other than my personal life. Well, it's, it's, it's very rarely you get to meet somebody that casually drops in. Oh, I had a meeting at the Vatican. So, you know, most most people, my nephew just got back from Rome and was in the Vatican as a as a traveler. But uh, you were there for meetings. Tell us a little bit about did you get to meet with okay. Pope Francis? Sure, yeah. Absolutely. Well, actually, no, he canceled. I have met oh. him in the past. I was at his installation. I was, I, I met him on at least three or four occasions. In fact, I had met him when he was still in Buenos Aires. In addition to that, more, more relevant to his installation was there was a unique, really historic event today after his installation for a, a multi-religious audience co-convened by the ecumenical patriarch of the Greek Orthodox Church, Bartholomew and Pope Francis, where they had 14 people from world, each from world religions. And I was a part of that. And that was extraordinary. That was that was for having been having been there. I'll, I'll tell you how I got into this in a second. I mean, you know, you just I, I know it sounds like a throwaway, but <laughs> but, you know, what can I tell you? It's but the fact is, of all the visits and there have been a lot to to these places. That was the most extraordinary at the Vatican because it really demonstrated something unique about this pope and about the understanding of what multi-religious participation meant in the context of the Vatican these days. So let me just put in perspective because it, it, it's, it's a natural question. I've, I've always been interested in this kind of stuff. I majored in religion. I, I began, I've had five careers. My first career was at, at Brown University. I was associate chaplain. I also taught, but by definition, as associate chaplain was a you're part of a multi-religious group after i i i, I was tenured at brown but I, I gave it up i was in chicago after that and a very part-time basis i taught theology at Loyola university at jesuit university I, I should point out i'm jewish so it's, it's a little bit relevant <laughs> and then sometime later on when, when 20 plus years ago i started getting involved in the international level you know i was involved in the domestic level the local level and then the international level and before you know it i was chair of a couple of boards I don't know how these happen. These things happen. One was, I'll I'll talk about the larger one. I'm sure you're going to ask this question too. One is a board called the Board of World Religious Leaders, which is comprised of leaders of six religions. And that's the one I suspect you're going to want to come back to the Dalai Lama in a minute. But that's six religions. And when they elected me, the, the the chair, I said, look, the rest of you are leaders of followers. I'm just a leader of leaders. Mm-hmm. The, the other, that, you know, the three Abrahamic traditions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, Hindu, Buddhist, and Sikh. The other board, which is relevant to why I was at the Vatican last time, is that there's an official consortium of the world Jewish community that was convened at the request of the Vatican in 1970 and met for the first time in 1971, establishing formal relations between the Jewish community and the the Catholic Church for the first time in history. Wow. As you probably know, for 1800 years, there was not friendly relations. The Vatican, the Catholic Church was not particularly thrilled that Jews existed and the Jews were not particularly thrilled to be invited into those circles. But after Vatican II, Nostra Tate, that all changed. This organization, which is really a consortium of organizations of the major Jewish organizations in the world, came into existence. And uh, I I was chair of this organization at the 40th anniversary in in 2010, 2012 of, of that 
about an initial meeting. As past chair, I still get invited to these meetings. I will tell you, and I don't mean to be cavalier about this, when I say there were meetings, I want to make a distinction between audiences with the Pope, which, which are not really meetings. I right. mean, they're, they're great photo ops, and, and he's an interesting guy, and the previous Popes are interesting, but the truth is they're not meetings. But when you meet the Secretary of State, then you, and, and you meet the, the, the cardinals that head the various offices, and when, you, when you're actually in a situation where you sit down and you really talk about issues, those are, those are significant meetings, and, and, and that's, what, that's what these were about. For a long time, there were still issues from the, I don't want to take too long on this, because I know you want to move on, but for a long time, there really were specific Jewish Catholic issues. Today, most of the issues are not really that. The, the number of issues that really remain in terms of Catholic Jewish understanding are very infinitesimal. But we, we we're, we're world religions. We care about civil society. We care about we care about the erosion of civil liberties. We care about the the the, the, the nature of climate erosion and change in, in the world. And so we have a lot of things in common of which we, as two leading world religions, have much to talk about. So there are things that are internal, that are specific to our relationship, but things that really have a larger implication. So that's these. And before the pandemic, these meetings took place every year in alternate years at the Vatican and other years somewhere else in the world. And now we're beginning to do that again. So that's why I was there. Uh, well, it's, mostly. it's really encouraging, Richard, because typically religions as a whole have been more exclusive and excluding versus including to, you know, I had no idea that the major leaders from the major movements around the world are, are meeting on a regular basis. That's not something that we typically hear about, Brandon. <laughs> no, not at all. And Richard, is, is the goal... The, is the goal cohesion, connection, relationship? Look, it's you know, all of good. the above. It's okay. all of the above. I want to make it make it clear. You know, the Vatican is is fairly unique in the sense that it's hierarchical. Right. There's there's none of the other religious entities, even the Greek Orthodox Church. None of the other religious entities are hierarchical in the way the Catholic Church is. So the the fact is that the policy that's set by the Vatican. The, the Pope or, or whatever appropriate office within the Vatican really is obligatory for the entire world Roman Catholic community. There's that's not true of Judaism. That's not true of, of Islam. That's not true of Hinduism. That's not true of Buddhism. It's not true. Of, right. You know, so so in a sense, there's a there, there's an imbalance there. It's easy. But but the fact is, when the Vatican decided to change its educational system and its theology to to recognize the legitimacy of other religions, to recognize that there was a legitimacy to the, to the covenant that applied to Jews or that other world religions actually were were not heretical by definition. That was a major change that was obligatory on every Catholic around the world. That doesn't mean every Catholic. That doesn't mean every priest. It doesn't mean every bishop. And or even every archbishop automatically acts that way or fully understands it. But it does mean that that's the policy of the church. That's extraordinary for a religion to change its basic theology. Yes. Uh, yes. It, as yes. Roman Catholics did in, 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 the, in the 60s, it was, is, is unprecedented. And I'm not trying to be simplistic. I'm not trying to say there are not issues. I'm not trying to say there aren't issues where they have unresolved issues and we might have criticisms and, and so forth. But that's extraordinary. But I also want to say that most of the work that we do... The, is most of the work that I'm involved in, I have to say, is somewhere between the 30 and 60,000 foot level. 
Okay. You know, I mean, if you, when you're meeting with world leaders at that level, <clears throat> it takes a lot of steps to get down to the ground. Right. Now, it's true if the leaders, but, but what is what should be encouraging is that, in fact, most, most, not all, not all. I don't want to overstate this. I don't want to misrepresent it. There's plenty of things you can read in the paper about very narrow minded religious leaders of every religion. Right. My own included. Yeah. But when you have top well-known leaders of all the religions get together and there's really an assumption of acceptance of the other, that's an important implicit statement about how we learn from each other and what it says about the world. That yes. doesn't mean that every detail there has to be full a, con- a concurrence on or we aren't distinct religions. But the assumption that we're meeting with with amity and with 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 full faith, pun intended there, means that there's an acceptance of the other in a profound and, and transformative way. And so that's what the level that I'm on now is in this very unique stratified, you know, right. level of stratification, which, which stratosphere is the word I was looking for. Is And I, and I respect that. But I don't want anybody to say, oh, my goodness, what was you met with all these people? Show us on the ground what happened tomorrow. No, it takes a while. Right. But, it doesn't happen that way. But the but, leadership but, matters. Leadership matters. It does. And I guess what's encouraging is what, what we see in society is very much a it's like we're, we're forced through media now and social media to basically you're on one side or the other. And it's very black and white. Yep. And if you don't believe what I believe, and this goes not just on religious, it's political. It's it, it's like the movies. You, I mean, it's like, you know, you don't like this type of music. Well, I don't like you. Uh, it's very much like what this what the media does to us. It divides us. And so to hear that at the highest levels, there are people meeting that don't have things in common, yet still can be in the same room and be friendly, be cordial and have discussions about not only what brings them, what, what their differences are, but what what's in common. And so to hear you talk about that is very encouraging because what we see and what we hear to most people going on in society is very discouraging. Wouldn't you agree? Mm-hmm. Look, I want to go for Look, so I want to make two quick comments. Not only do we become friends, not only are we friendly, but we become friends. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are relationships that have emerged through these things. People I may see only once every two years, but when we're in the same room together, we, we, we are connecting as friends. There's that level of, of intimacy that, that emerges, not with everybody, of course, but with some of these very important people. But I want to come out absolutely correct. One of the reasons that there's this tremendous concern about the erosion of civil society is precisely because the the absolutism that that requires that you're either that you're either with me or against me is is destructive. Right. It's not only the media. I mean, look, the, the media fosters it. But it did wouldn't exist if if, if it the media is ref, is only reflecting something that's there. Now there's some parts sure. of the media that, that that feed on this kind of stuff. But but nevertheless, there's been a, it's just I mean there's many factors there's more than we have time to go into our in our right. limited time talking to each other. But I don't I, I want to be careful that we don't blame it on the media. There's leadership responsibilities that we have. There's there, there's education. We're paying the price. In, in certainly in the United States, more than some other places, of an erosion of, 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 of education. And when I say liberal education, I don't mean politically liberal, of liberal education where people are taught how to read and taught how to think and taught how to and, and, and taught what it means to be an educated person. 
the you know when 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 Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson were were creating the United States and wrote the Declaration of Independence and the, and they talked about life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness and things like that. One of the things they did at the same time was create the Free Library of Philadelphia. Do you know why they did that? These wealthy people that were well educated, because their concept was you could not have a free society without a literate society. And mm. since people could not afford books in those days, if you didn't provide free literacy, free, free opportunity for literacy, there's no way the democratic society could function. It wasn't accidental that they created free libraries in, 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 the, in, in the 18th century. And, and that's a concept that's been lost in terms of the funding that we have for education, the support for educators, the, the, the understanding of what, a, what an education is really supposed to be about. So the, the, now the media plays into that, but they're not guilty. They're not specifically responsible for it. We now have a generation where we have stopped funding education appropriately, where we've cut things out. We've assumed that we've assumed that they're the, the teachers should be living on, on starvation wages. Uh, that, that, that that's a, a low level job in society without recognizing that without an educated populace, there is no such thing as a, as, as, as a democracy. So that's a long speech, but I, mm. it's really yeah. important for us. It's really important for us to, 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 to recognize that when we have rebuilding to do, you talked about the schisms in society, but when we talk about the rebuilding we have to do, we have to rebuild the, something that's been lost over almost two generations now. And, 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 and we, have to, we have to make sure that we're invested in what does it mean to, 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 be, to, to be there. And we have to hopefully save it before it gets lost. Mm. Hey everyone, hope you are enjoying our deep conversation with Richard Marker. He is the founder of wisephilanthropy.institute. That is a website, wisephilanthropy.institute. On that site, he's got a bunch of resources. His audience is primarily funders, not founders, funders, so people with money and foundations. And he works with them uh, to help them make better decisions about where they invest their time, resources, and money. And so if you are a leader and uh, want some help from a very experienced, wise philanthropist himself, uh, you want to reach out to Richard at wisephilanthropy.institute. You're listening to The Innovative Founder. Now, back to your hosts, Bob Regnaris and Brandon Boyd. Hey, Richard, I'm, I'm curious about something. Let me take you back a little bit. What Sorry is there about any that, uh... Oh no, that's good stuff. No, this is all good. This is your passion, your enthusiasm, your conviction is is fantastic, and and prompts a question: When did this journey begin for you personally? Was there a relationship in your life as a young man, a mentor? Why why did you go down this path? What what was the reason? Was there some event that got you really interested okay. in faith so and religion? So there were two transformative events, one of which I never really understood until I was older, and one I experienced in an unintended way. One is I, I come from, I'm, as I mentioned, I'm Jewish, but I come from a very assimilated background. My family didn't was not Jewishly identified, at least my immediate family. And But I went to, a, I was Quaker educated in Philadelphia, and the person who taught religion there was the Quaker, edu, was the Quaker representative at the Nuremberg Trials. Now, my age is relevant to that because I, I was in seventh grade when I started in that school in 1956. If you think about it, those trials were not that many years before then. 
So, mm-hmm. so when, when Richard Wood was teaching religion and somehow I knew that's kind of stuff, even though I was young at the time, there was something contemporaneous about somebody who was really a part of one of the, the great judgmental events in, in, in history, but certainly in the 20th century. It was only later that I understood that he had been an impact on me. And by that time, unfortunately, he had died. He was already not young when he was teaching. The second event that actually pushed me into the international realm was finding myself by coincidence in Berlin the day the wall came down. Mm-hmm. In other words, my interest in religion can be traced to to what I just told you, the, the Quaker education, and one thing sort of led to the other. I majored in religion in college I, and so forth. But, but the international was when I had been a guest of the West German government on, on what they used to call these guest programs, where they were trying to demonstrate that West Germany was had had responded to its terrible history in World War II and built into itself an understanding of what it means to be a responsible society, what education required, what uh, what what democracy required. And they wanted to invite people from various kinds of backgrounds, political leaders, religious leaders, all sorts of leaders to de- to see it. So I was a, a guest of, of, of a program, a three-week program of West Germany that, that was mostly in October of 1989 and happened to go into November 89. Well, the program ended a little bit earlier. I stayed a little bit longer and I happened to, and I happened by coincidence to be in Berlin at finishing my program when the, the day the wall came down. Uh, it was unintended. I'm. I, I've learned not to take too much credit for it because it wasn't a simple thing. Uh, but uh, but I was. But the truth is, you you can organize your life. No matter what you think you can organize your life, you can't organize your life about being present at that kind of transformative moment in history. It made me something I really was never before. I had traveled a bit internationally, but I was not an internationalist. And after that, I realized that I had a very narrow parochial vision of the world as emerging out from the United States and began to do a lot of things internationally. I developed a program with the with the German Foreign Office later on, with them with Austria, and, and began to do things all over the world, uh, or at least lots of places in the world, which got me, which, which is really what, what, what played a, a key role in a couple of areas. Number one, it, it prepared me to be internationally involved interreligiously, but it also played a key role in a part of my background which we haven't talked about or haven't mentioned. I was giving a talk in Thessalonica, Greece, and a headhunter heard me and asked if I wanted to be the CEO of a foundation. And so the official, well, I've been doing things like that, the transform, the, the transition into the philanthropy world, which we, you know, we talked about, if you remember at the beginning of this discussion, was, was when I was, because of that international connection, was, became the, the head of a foundation it turned out that foundation was in its last five years. It was a corporate slash family foundation. The company was sold. It was a famous company. It was the Seagram Company. The, mm-hmm. the person who headed that was the, the Bronfman, uh, the, was Edgar Bronfman Sr. But in 2002, they, they merged that company into a French company, Vivendi. And, and so the foundation closed. I've been independent. I've been in the philanthropy world ever since, but not working for any one foundation. But that's, so the international stuff is actually key in terms of, both my my philanthropy involvement and also my interreligious involvement. What? It's a long answer to your question. What? <laughs> how would you define philanthropy, Richard? I mean, people might think of it like as charity, but it seems like it's much more rich than just that. 
Philanthropy is a commitment to using whatever human or financial resources you have to make the world a better place. That's, that's, uh, really, that's really good. Very succinct as well. And then, so along those lines, calling yourself a philanthropist, like what, what, what is, what is, you know, if you can brag for a second, like what's your superpower? Is it, is it getting people connected? Is it getting people talking? Like what, what would you define your superpower to be? Well, I think that one, it was it was sort of coincidental that I became a philanthropy educator. We are on a modest level philanthropists ourselves. I've sat on foundation boards. I played I played all the roles of I played all the roles. Sure. But by coincidence, while I was still heading the the foundation, you know, while I was heading the foundation, and I had never had any training, I kept, I would go to fellow people in the field, the fellow foundation executives or others. And I would say, well, how do you learn about this stuff? And they would make jokes. And the standard joke in those days, you don't hear it so much anymore. The standard joke is you met one foundation, you met one foundation. And I ultimately decided that that was a terrible concept. Well, what does it mean? We have no standards. We have no, there's no accountability. We don't have to sign off the ethics statements, that there's nothing to learn from one another, that you just carve your own way. And so when I was invited to start teaching funders at a program at NYU that doesn't exist anymore, but it existed for about 15 years, I, I, I was very engaged in that because I really felt that our field needed to have some standards and education and educational principles. Now, I wanted you to know that while I think I'm, I'm a pretty good educator, and I guess people seem to think that, the truth is that I never claimed to know it all. And so what I did when, I, when NYU asked me to develop this program, I didn't just sit around and say, well, this is what people should know. I went to the major institutions, the Council on Foundations, the Association of Small Foundations, what was that? It wasn't, it's not called that anymore. The, the National Center for Family Philanthropy or the former regional associations. And I went to them and I said a simple question, what should a funder know? And they all said pretty much the same thing. So when we put the whole educational program together, it wasn't based on what I, Richard Marker, thought people should know, but rather what the field thought they should know. Now, obviously, in the 20 some years since then, it's emerged and evolved and, you know, you add new things and you modify things. I'm not saying what we teach now is exactly what I was teaching 22 years ago, but it, but the basic core concepts of ethics and history and and how you make decisions and how you act responsibly and how you don't abuse your power and all the, all those kinds of things the, the core concepts were developed because the field said we needed to know those things so if i the, so the magic sauce that i bring to it is that i that i, I i've worn all the hats you know i've even okay. been before i was on the nonprofit side but i've been a, a funder i've been a board member i've been a, an educator i've been a, a, so i i've, I've worn all the different hats. And because of that, I really have a deep, a, a fairly broad database, an implicit database when, sure. when to be able to call upon when, when to, to be able to share things. Now, I'm going to go back to a question I thought you were going to ask me, but I'm going to ask, answer it anyway. The, the issue is sometimes I jump ahead. Right? That's all right. Uh, you, you, You're flowing. You can edit that out or not. But, you know, sometimes people say, well, how much do you need to be a real philanthropist? And one of the popular talks I used to give is how to be a philanthropist on five dollars a week. And people would say, oh, you got to be kidding. Well, the truth of the matter is I'm not kidding. 
you know, you can go to a local soup kitchen and for $250, you're probably one of the major funders. We were, and you know, depending where you are, there's parts of the world for $250, you can be a significant influence in a, in, in a, in a micro, a, a micro company or, or, or a local community where, where people are, don't, we're just, they're, they're hidden from the big funders view. And yet you can keep it going for a couple hundred dollars. Now the Metropolitan Museum of Art or, or the Art Institute in Chicago or things like that, they're not going to put you on the board for $250 a year. <laughs> but there are places where you can be a player. And one of the things I like to say is that, you know, that, that, that don't worry about how much money one has. There are ways in which you can make a difference in this world with whatever resources and connections you have. I don't tell people where they should give their money. We have things that we care about. Me and my, my wife has a PhD in environmental stuff. We're um, not surprisingly, we're deeply involved in, in funding environmental things and uh, investing and involved in that. Not surprisingly, we care deeply about intergroup kinds of things and we fund in that area. But I'm not going to sit around and tell other people where they should give their money. But one of the things I can do is help them figure out the ways of making decisions that are right for them. And that's one of the things that the, if you want to ask the secret sauce, it's having the depth of experience where sure. I can help people make those decisions in a way that can help them make the impact that they want. So, I mean, it, it, and I was going to ask that question. So we're, we're very much in sync. I love that. It seems like it's not my know, first interview. <laughs> and not mine. The, I, I guess the thing that's kind of brewing inside of me is, people have like the vehicle for which they they want to change the world. And a lot of people, Brandon, I know are in the world of business. Mm -hmm. And so they seek to change the world through business. Certainly, you know, you could think about, okay, I want to be involved in the, in the religious space. I want to be involved in the political space. You know, I think, you know, we're, we're kind of called into like a space where it's like, you know, these are where my gifts are most prevalent and where I feel most comfortable. And this is how I'm going to make my mark or make my change in the world. Do you work with and 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 have resources for people who are maybe younger? I mean, you called yourself an elder. You've got that experience. But are you seeing generations below you have that same interest and, and take in a vehicle like a business or political aspirations or religious aspirations to to change the world in that way? So let me put it in both positive. Let, let me respond to both the positive parts of that and the negative parts of that. Okay. If so the positive part is that there are a wide variety of resources and vehicles that we can use to make a difference. The question that, that has to be asked is, are you using those vehicles authentically or are you trying to greenwash through them? In other words, if a fossil fuel company, sorry, if a fossil fuel company starts taking ads out and say, oh my goodness, we're committed to the environment. And, and, and at the same time as uh, selling fossil fuels that are burning the environment, it's not credible. You know, that's, that's greenwashing. And so I don't care how many ads they take out to say how advanced their thinking is, it's not there. But if somebody is serious about it, yes, we, we, there, there are some kinds of ways in which we invest money for for-profit. We, in our personal resources, Meryl and I, we, with some of our money, we, we, we try to do good through philanthropic, direct philanthropic involvement. But some of it, we also do in, in impact investing. We're, in, we're invested in some uh, solar fuel, solar fields in Africa. We, we're invested in some affordable housing projects in the United States. I'm just giving a couple of examples. Sure. Those are for-profit entities, but they're specifically committed to doing good. What, what we do, what, what I do reject 
is the assumption that you can solve every problem in a for-profit motive. There okay. are some problems that can be solved through in, by developing for-profit incentives, and there's no question about that. And I, and I think it's naive to somehow say only philanthropy can, can solve problems. But if once one says, oh, you, the only way to solve problems is by uh, through a for-profit motivation, otherwise you're not going to reach scale or things like that, that's naive and counterproductive. The fact of the matter is that the deep-seated problems of the world are systemic. They're multi-sector. There is no deep-seated problem, whether it's hunger or homelessness or, or, or climate or whatever, you know, whatever, or migrations or whatever you want to talk about, healthcare. If, if you think that only one sector can solve that problem, you're missing the boat and you're never going to solve the systemic issues. One of the, the deeper you get into any of these kinds of things, the more you realize that you have to find ways where the resources of each of them and the insights of each of them have to be brought to bear to, to solve the deepest problems. Any given problem, any specific problem can be solved maybe through a, a, a small business or it can be solved through philanthropy or, 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 or through government funding. But the truth is that when you get to the deeper problems, the problems that you referred to earlier on and the problems that really are, are so resistant to, 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 to solution, you have to think broadly and you have to think in intersector capacity. And, that's, and so it's not one or the other, but it has to be all. Sure. Richard, do you have an example you can give of a problem, a systemic problem that is in process of being solved with this approach? I love the approach. I love the, the conviction that it's not going to be the philanthropist to fix it. It's not going to be the capitalist. It's not it's it's going to be a team. It's going to be a coordinated effort. Do you have an example for us? Sure. Well, well almost any example. But let's go back to the issue of solar. 20, 20 years ago, solar was not yet a, a, a people could not imagine making any money from solar. That was still a philanthropic investment. In other words, if you wanted solar, other than maybe you could put something on your house, you know, an individual could put solar on their house. But if you really wanted to impact whole communities, like have community solar, how, as we have in Maryland, where we live in an apartment, but we buy solar from a community solar field. 20 years ago, that would have been a philanthropic investment. Today, that's a for-profit investment that we're invested in. On the other hand, there are places where, where if you really, where for whatever reasons to get that, to get to, to address fossil fuels, it's not going to be possible. The, the state doesn't give you the privilege, the permission to build the community solar, or there are, it's too isolated and, and they're not yet committed to making uh, these things are available in, in a general way. So in those cases, you make them into a small community and say, yes, we recognize that local foundations are going to have to put some money on the table if we're interested in combating the fossil fuel, the climate change degradation. That, that's that's one kind of example. Another example is, is food insecurity. I mean, it's disgraceful. There is enough food in this world right now. It may not be for very long, but we have enough food in this world to feed everybody. Well, the fact is that if you if, if you look at if you look at things right now and you say, oh, my goodness, yes, of course, uh, the, the for, pro for profits can get that can raise more, get more food more quickly. That may be true. But efficiency, which is what big companies are about, may leave small communities out of there. We have food deserts, right? We have, as you know, in, in poor communities, they only have very expensive food. They don't have access to fr fresh fruits and vegetables. If you depend on the for-profit motive to get those things in those communities, you're it's not going to work because the big company is going to say it's not efficient. So you may still need, you may still need the philanthropy. But 
in all of the above cases, you still need public policy. You still need uh, public investment. For mm-hmm. example, if, if, if you know what SNAP funding is, right? It used to be called food stamps. Well, the truth of the matter is that that's the most efficient way to get resources into the at-risk population that exists. Food pantries serve a purpose, but it's far in, far insufficient for many reasons. We don't have time to go into in the time we have in front of us. If you, the most efficient way in the United States to actually address food insecurity is through government funding, because it people go why? Because of distribution. People will go into a grocery store. The food is already there. You don't have to have people give cans at their church or cans at a local soup kitchen. There's a you can go through a line. You have a credit. You have a debit card. You have a debit card. So there's no shame involved in being able to get the food. It's 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 available. The more we support SNAP funding. In a, in a consistent way on a national and state level, and the, the, the more we're going to be able to address it. But if you pay attention to what I just said, you still need this, you still need the for-profit grocery stores, right? The government isn't giving the food right. out. The food is given in for-profit. And even that is not necessarily going to cover some of the small pockets where those grocery stores don't exist. So that's an example, a very real example where if you're committed to addressing food insecurity, hunger, and 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 people who have in, in, inadequate sustenance, then you see that all those things have to be in play at the same time. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a good example for you, but uh, no, like that's, that. well, that's it is because really you you need to get a lot of different people and a lot of leaders involved in solving systematic problems. Is what you're that's saying? That's right. That's right. Awesome. Systemic and systematic. Hey, everybody, I hope you're enjoying the show today. We're so excited to have Richard on and learning a lot about the world of philanthropy, as well as inclusion and solving big systemic problems with inclusion versus one ideology. He's he's such a master at bringing people together, and that's very, very evident. If you go to his website, wisephilanthropy.institute, you're going to see that he has made a career out of helping people make better choices in their philanthropy, in their giving, as well as organizations who are looking for funding. Fantastic resource, plenty and plenty of articles. There are over 400 articles Richard has written about this. Please check it out. You're listening to The Innovative Founder. Now, back to your hosts, Bob Rickneris and Brandon Boyd. So let's 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 pull a couple of stories out of you, Richard. Why were you co-chairing a, a meeting with the Dalai Lama? Tell us about that. Oh, okay. So I, that's an easy one because I already gave I, I gave you the gave away on that earlier on. I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm past chair of, his, of, of this Board of World Religious Leaders, and we have meetings in different parts of the world. And one of the meetings was held at the Golden Temple in uh, India. I will tell you that if it's an extraordinary place to visit. It really is gilded with gold. They mm. feed the, the Sikh religion feeds people as part of the religion. The Golden Temple feeds on strictly through volunteers, 100 to 200,000 people a day. Wow. Day. It's wow. an unbelievable place. Anyway, since it was in India, the, the Dalai Lama is a part of this, but he doesn't attend all the meetings. But these kind of you know, he's more famous than everybody else. No matter, all, the, all these other people have many, many, sometimes millions of followers, but you know, the Dalai Lama is unique. So I was chair of the, the group. I was in the front of the room. The head of the C community was there and the Dalai Lama was between us. And I'll just tell you a, a cute story about that. The Dalai Lama, I don't think, is used to sitting for three days in behind closed doors with the same people. So in the so he's a character, as you're not surprised to hear. So in the middle of the meeting, as we're sitting there having discussions about the other and, and 
responsibility and justice and all that kind of stuff. In the middle of it, he reaches over and he starts playing with the long white beard of the head of the Sikh community. <laughs> you know, just, just reaches over to his right, right? And that's, and then out of nowhere. And then a few minutes later, he reaches the other side where I'm sitting and starts patting my stomach. So he's, uh, you know, but that's, by the way, it says something about how, how, how warm some of these meetings are, although he's now, see when hard. Brandon does that at dinner, when he starts yeah. playing with my bald head, I get yeah. really offended. So it's, I don't know. It's kind guess, of icky. Yeah. yeah so I don't know if the, Dal- if the Dalai Lama could do it, Brandon, I guess you could do it. Too. I guess. Yeah. I'll, it's a spiritual practice, Bob. Just deal with it. When I reach over and kind of stroke the yeah. brain. I, I, I yeah. want to know something about this. Do you only interview people who are bald? <laughs> Hey, no. Technically, I shave my head, but it's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll be in the bald category. I've it's lost fine. it, honestly. Anyway, okay. But <laughs> so the, the fact of the matter is that, you know, the, some of these world religious leaders are extraordinary. You know, the, the most authentic pluralist, I mean, since we're talking about not the them, but, but this group, the most authentic pluralist in the, I've ever met in the world is a, a Dharma master from Taiwan. On his property overlooking the Pacific in, in Taiwan, he built six different Buddhist temples representing six different Buddhist traditions. Can you imagine that sort of like, can you imagine your, your Methodist church or whatever, whatever your, or your Catholic church saying, oh, well, we, we're going to build a synagogue and um, a Methodist church and a Presbyterian church, as well as our own Catholic church, right on our own property. How often do you see something like that? But more than that, in Taipei itself, he built a museum of world religions where he built scale models of key key religious entities of 14 world religions. He trains people to talk about the, these world religions. He brings school children and others open to anybody, but brings school children to learn about world religions. Now, can you imagine a world religious leader is so committed to pluralism that he builds museums like that? He's built a couple others elsewhere in the world. I mean, you meet people like this. It's it's just extraordinary. People that have commitments to things that you wouldn't even imagine. So that's, uh, I'm just giving a couple of examples of the people who come to these meetings and why it's such a, a, a treat to be a part of that. And it's really humbling because really I've, whatever I've accomplished in my life, you know, I, I've never been a Dalai Lama. I've never been that kind of Dharma master. I've never been a chief rabbi. I've never been a pope. And to be able to function as a, as, as a kind of a, have a leadership role where I sit with these people on as in, in in this kind of wonderful way it's it's just really a wonderful thing but it's also humbling did you ever think when you were doing your one man nightclub show that you'd be having a a meeting with the pope and the dalai well, actually, lama in your life okay. well that was later actually that followed that so why did i do a one man you know show so when i turned 70 my wife said to me you know you really should have a bucket list i think i said earlier that how old I am now, 77. But when I turned 70, you know, I said, you have to have a bucket list. So it turned out that a, a very prominent philanthropist with whom we were very close friends had been at our home for a party once and everyone was singing and he heard me sing and said, you know, you have a good voice. You should consider doing it. So I, that sort of sat in the back of my mind. So after when Marilyn said, have a bucket list, I said, oh, you know what I want to do? I want to do a the nightclub act. So I spoke to some friends of mine who are real musicians and, and, and they said, yeah, yeah, you can pull it off. So I studied for a year, learned all these, I had to relearn everything. I'd never studied music officially before. I had to relearn everything I thought I knew. And we rented a, a small nightclub on the west, upper west side of Manhattan, had a hundred people there. 
And it was a great evening, you know. I saw show tunes and you know whatever you want to mention. It was it was, it was a lot of fun. Were you, were so you the a, headliner and only performer? I was, the, I was I was a one person show. The only exception was Marilla, who plays the ukulele and sometimes writes her own music, joined me for two of the songs in the middle of it. But I was wasn't just a headliner. I was the I was the I was the line. <laughs> it was my Fantastic. show. Fantastic. We gotta see if we can track down some of that footage. I want I want leverage <laughs> the next time we talk to Richard. <laughs> So let's talk about this amateur cooking career. That's because we're clearly men who like food here. Okay. So not me, that, huh? But not, not me, not, but, but Julia Child. Okay, so here's the deal with that. That goes back. Okay, now we're going back to the beginning of my career. If, okay. if, the, if this nightclub act was sort of at the, it's sort of like a signature thing at the end, yeah. the cooking was at the beginning. I, I, I think I mentioned earlier, I began my career as a chaplain at Brown. And in the summers, there were really not a lot of people around. And so that we would invite people over to our home. And that was just at the time when Julia Child was becoming famous. You know, have had her TV show. I don't know if you've ever seen her early shows. Oh, yeah. Of course. Since you guys are in video stuff. I mean, it was just like, that was cutting it. Like nobody was just she's a character and all and people got interested now to put this in perspective why did i why did i find it so appealing well first of all if you're entertaining a lot you don't want to make the same thing all the time but more to the point i didn't realize and cooking was one of the things both julia child and cooking itself made me realize how much i i consider life an art form and cooking is the one art form that uses every one of the senses Mm. If you think about that, it's it used all the senses. And so one of the things about cooking through Julia Child is that she's very she, she really teaches technique. You know, you could you could make the using the same technique. You could go maybe 10 weeks at a time, make something that's totally different, totally different taste, but uses the same technique. And that was really interesting to me. I was like, you know, as an educator and I was a I taught intellectual history, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So it, it appealed to me to learn these techniques in, in a conceptual way. So that was so it, it was it, it appealed to both my my artistic sense and also my intellectual sense. So, so for for several years, every, every summer when we would invite people, or I guess during the year too, but I didn't do it during the year was was busier. I would I would learn all the, these techniques. And so what then, was the what was the favorite dish you made? Is, was it kokovan? What like what what was the dish that you so, made so, okay. the most? So I will I will tell you the one I used to get the greatest kick out of. It's a dish that nobody today would eat. I'll tell you why because it was a full uh, it was a it was like a toe of crepes enfant. What it means is, is it's you, you take a layer of, of crepes, right? Little pancakes and maybe 20 high. And between each one, you put things like, whatever you put between them is a cream sauce, mushroom sauce, spinach sauce. So, and then at the, and then at the end, you put a cheese sauce on top of the thing. So you have to picture, it looks like a great big cake filled with richness. So there's nobody's heart today that could sustain eating it. <laughs> And, but but it was but it was such a great showpiece. I mean, the, I the beef bourguignon, the, the, you know, coconut, all those kinds of things were were great fricassee examples of, of of a certain style of cooking. But the greatest showpiece that I did was this gâteau of crêpes bonfons. And as I say, I I couldn't imagine making it today because my my cardiologist would come over and take it away from me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if it was a great showpiece when you, you did. Sounds amazing. Sounds delicious. Yeah. Like, so I was in Russia, you know, 20 years ago, adopting my son from Siberia. And we were there and, you know, I wanted pancakes for breakfast. And, and so I was delivered crepes with oh, the caviar. 
on top. Sure. And I don't know about you, but caviar in the morning for breakfast, not that exciting. So the idea that you have crepes with all these types of delicious sauces in between sounds actually fantastic. Well, I didn't serve it for breakfast. It was it, sounded, <laughs> it was a bit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Blini for breakfast know, for me, right. not, not so much. Blini with, blini with caviar is... is is, is it, it, is it, it when is that sort of, is that a common I, I i didn't know when i was is that a common for a breakfast or is it more yeah blini although you could have blini at other times of day you know there's no there's no culture in the world that doesn't have a pancake yeah right i mean the mushu you know mushu pork whatever different kinds of like that or i mean or if you think about a, a manicotti in italy it's basically a crepe that's wrapped up and there's no there's no culture that doesn't have something like that and they each have the characteristic ways in which it's served it's, it reflects them i'm just Probably curious about fish eggs in the morning you're like it's like do people really eat them like okay. well do you have one sure i can, up, I can up and up my game well do you eat eggs in the morning i do I well do. then what's wrong with fish eggs well because it tastes <laughs> like fish and salt and they taste like sardines and I, that's usually a later in the day that's all just just curious uh, because they weren't giving you the, they weren't giving you the sturgeon caviar they were probably giving oh. you the cheap stuff damn it ah <laughs> there you go on it they too they knew they saw me a mile away they saw me coming I, I see. Well, I think we're going a little far afield for your for your listeners, but that's no, uh, not in the yeah, least. And I guess we've covered a lot of part of the world. So what can I tell you? <laughs> you know, try, listen. I you never. I guess my guess is with you guys, you never know where it's going to go with these discussions, right? Oh, nope. We keep it organic, and that's what makes it fun. Hey, that's so, fine. On that note, what we like to do as we're as we're closing out here at the end of our show, what we like to do is we we like to give our guests what we call our sixty second rant or soapbox. And I feel like you could have one. This can be about anything, anything you want to stand on the soapbox, rant about, preach about, talk about. We like that. We like this section because we can learn a little bit more about you and and, and your personality. Right. So, do you okay. have anything well, I, you'd like to rant? About? And this can be anything, Richard. This is yes, anything at all. I do. All right, you can go. <laughs> I made I made reference to it earlier in in the show. I'm I'm very 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 concerned about the erosion of civil society around the world. I, I think that we have taken for granted in the West, and not just in the United States, but in Western Europe as well. And there are deep-seated challenges to what we consider the core principles of civil society. And it involves education. It involves participating in the political process. It involves accepting the other. It involves, it, it involves concepts of privacy. It involves so many elements that are currently being attacked and under eroding. And I, I think that there has never been a more profound international challenge to what, what civil society is about. It's happened, obviously, in particular places. You know, you can you can go in history and you can find there were countries that that had terrible practices. But right now, in too many places around the world, uh, governments and and the, and the political ethos is really challenging that. And, and my view is that we have to work very hard to rebuild that, to rebuild confidence in the other, to rebuild confidence in what civil society can be about and government can be about and education can be about and the, and the human condition can be about. There's a, there's a vulnerability that we have to take very seriously today. So if you're asking for my soapbox, I, that, that is my soapbox and, and it, it, it keeps me awake at night. Yeah, there won't be too many people that will disagree with that. So thank you for sharing that. Thank yes. you for coming on the show, Richard. You know, you were asking like how you got chosen for this. And I think we just had a fascinating conversation and it went in a direction that I wasn't expecting. And it was absolutely a pleasure. So we'd love to give you just a chance to maybe plug your website or resources, let people know where they can learn more about philanthropy and what you're doing. 
Sure. The best, the simplest is our our website is wisephilanthropy.institute, wisephilanthropy.institute. Also, I, I teach part-time at the University of Pennsylvania Center for High Impact Philanthropy. That's courses exclusively for philanthropists and foundation professionals, but that's mentioned in the website. So that's the best thing. You'll be able to find about 400 articles I've written there. You'll be able to find all sorts of other things. And by all means, be in touch with me if you have thoughts you want to share and, and continue the discussion that we began today. It was a pleasure to be a part of your show. Well, it was definitely a pleasure having you and it's an honor and thank you for your service to of all of humanity and wish you many more years of doing so. It's it's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Richard. Fantastic. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Innovative Founder with Bob Regneris and Brandon Boyd, a show featuring the real stories of entrepreneurs making their beautiful dent in the world. If you like the show, let us know by leaving a rating. If you're an innovative business founder yourself with a story to tell, then you might just be our next guest. Reach out to us on InnovativeFounder.com and tell us your story. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time on The Innovative Founder.